You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's up, everybody? How's it going? Bengals Nation, I'm Anthony Cazenza, joined by John Sheeran for the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. I just realized that we did not put this up on CincyJungle.com when we were going on the air. So uh, (laughs) apologies to those of you who usually go right on CincyJungle.com and find that post. Um, That is not there this week. It's been that kind of week. We're still, at least I've still got holiday brain for Memorial Day. John, I hope you had a good Memorial Day, man. What's new? I did, man. And for anyone who usually goes to Cincy Jungle to click on our live stream on YouTube, if you really want to watch this, you can adapt. You can go on Twitter. You can find the live stream post that we have on at Bengals OBI and at Cincy Jungle on Twitter. If you really want to watch this, you, you can find a way. We, we, we can have one misstep after Memorial Day. Where there is a will, there is a way. Is that not the saying? We're seeing some good uh, – seeing some – comments here apologize to those of you who are tuning in live we were a couple minutes later than we expected for the live stream life happens uh child care issues happen you know all that all that fun stuff but we're 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 here we're talking bangles we've got another new week of otas and some more things to talk about we will be discussing that we will be discussing some of the praise and good things ahead for the Bengals offense as it pertains to the wide receiver group and Jamar Chase. We've got a state your case where I don't get to look like the jerk this week. Maybe maybe my co-host will <laughs> will assume that mantle. And then we've got some announcements at the end of the show as well. Should we change the segment title to like be a jerk for a week or something like that? It, it, like this is contrarian, jerk, right? contrarian of the week, I guess. I don't know. I'll to adjust that maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if state your case does it proper justice. That's that's right. Um, well, John, you've been pumping out article after article, as have all of the fine folks at Cincy Jungle, updating us all on the sights, the sounds, everything going on with OTAs. The second week here, Bengals are hitting the field. Joe Burrow is still practicing and uh, doing a lot of different things this week. We'll talk about Joe in a sec, but I want to talk about CJ Uzama, a guy who had an Achilles injury last week, addressed the media a very, very entertaining interview that uh, when addressing the local media. But the good news with him, especially with all of these question marks on the injury front, he claims that he is 100% and back healthy. That's got to be good news and music to Joe Burrow's ears. Yeah, so he tore his Achilles, I believe it was September 17th of last year. And I did the whole date duration calculator when writing that article about him saying that he's 
100%. And I'm like, how far, how long has it been since the injury? It was eight months and 16 days. So eight and a half, eight and a half months for an injury for, for most sports is at least a year long recovery process. And I think back to, I think it was Leon Hall, like over 10 years ago, he also tore his Achilles and he came back like better than ever afterwards. And it wasn't yeah. even a whole year for him too. So it's just really another example of some of these, some of these players, they get injured late in the year for the Bengals and it's unfortunate, but they always tend to come back quicker than usual. And it really is hats off to Nick Cosgrave and his, and his rehabilitation staff. But even for Uzoma, who's 28 now, he's 6'6", 260. He's pretty, pretty athletic for that size too, to be fully a hundred percent coming off an injury that incapacitated a superstar athlete in Kevin Durant for well over a year. Mm-hmm. Like I know no injuries, no, no two injuries are the same, even if they're classified as the same and every, everyone is different, but the recovery time is immaculate. And I think it was not rumored, but it was a topic of discussion as to whether or not the Bengals were going to make Uzoma a cap casualty this offseason. One year left on this deal, six million against the cap, very little um, dead money attached to it. You know, coming off an injury, how effective would he be? He's got Drew Sample breathing down his neck in the depth chart. I don't think the Bengals ever really consider that because they value not only Uzoma's ability on the field, but as a leader off the field. He's one of the longest tenured veterans on this team as at this point, now that the entire roster reset has happened. And I'm, I'm sure they had good faith in his recovery and, and being 100% for the offseason program, but he's now going to be 100% entirely for a pivotal contract year. He's probably playing for his last decent-sized contract at 28, 29 years old, and he's going to have all all a training camp to get ready for it, which is great. I, yeah, he was one of the the first free agency signings that that Zach made as a new new head coach, right? He was one of the first contracts they they doled out to some guys, if I remember correctly, back in 2019. Mm-hmm. Here, here's the thing that I, I I thought about, and I do want to I do want to talk about what Royal Flush Terry in the live YouTube chat, um, some of the parts that made the CJ Uzama interview entertaining this week. Uh, we want to talk about that, but here's here's something that kind of popped in my mind here on. On Tuesday, when I did the the water cooler chat, I relayed a quote. I think it was through Lindsey Patterson and Charlie Goldsmith um, that basically Jonah Williams was out there saying, you know, I, the Bengals and Zach Taylor showed a lot of good faith in me by not going out and, and drafting a pure left tackle, by not going in free agency and getting a pure left tackle. They got a, a, a good tackle in free agency, but they're placing him at right tackle. I'm the left tackle. They showed a lot of good faith. Well, in a lot of ways, the same could be said here with C.J. Uzama. Coming off an Achilles injury, you know, the the Bengals had opportunities to get tight ends in the draft in free agency. The only move they really made was Thad Moss, Burrow's old teammate at LSU, to round out the group. So I, I guess my question is, and maybe it's a little bit of both, but I'd love to hear your opinion on it because I just started thinking about this today. Do you think that that is a good faith gesture because they believe that Uzama is going to come back? He's not only going to have a, a quality year, but they liked what they saw in the Joe Burrow-led offense and the locker room leadership role. Or is it just that same thing, the Rams offense, Zach Taylor, you know, the tight end is a little, little bit down the pecking order in terms of their contributions to the passing game, maybe a little bit of both. I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, though. 
I think that he was supposed to be really involved in the offense last year. In seven quarters of play, he was targeted 11 times. He was the recipient of Joe Burrow's first career touchdown pass. I think the plan was for him to get around 60, 70 targets, which for a tight end is on the upper echelon when you Mm -hmm. compare it to the rest of the league. And I think that's because he's still a a pretty solid tight end. He's not really known around the league because he hasn't been that productive. He was only really productive, I think, uh, the year before, after he got that contract in 2019 and ever since – other than that, he's been behind Tyler Eifert, or he's just not been, you know, that involved in the offense, regardless of you know what the depth chart looks like. But I think it also comes down to like what you said about the pecking order and the positional value and the importance of it. And how important is it to really get an upgrade over a guy in CG Uzama at tight end? Like, unless you are staring in the face of a Kyle Pitts and you think that he's like like the best prospect in the draft and he's like the ultimate plan, like unless you have an option like that to get a truly elite player that can put you in the in the category of the Darren Wallers, the Travis Kelsey's of the world, unless you have that opportunity to do so, like it's like it's a marginal cost type of thing. Is it worth that much of an investment to get a marginal upgrade at a position that's not really going to elevate your offense unless he is that caliber of player? So I think that along with all the other factors of why they love Uzoma, the fact that he is a locker room leader, he's a veteran, that's that importance in him being on the team and him being a solid player. I also think that they're probably thinking to themselves, it's not really worth going out and trying to get a somewhat upgrade at this position when we have a decent player here we, who we think is confident, who we believe is going to return from injury on time. And we'll be known, it's June, he's back there in, in full capacity, and he's going to be a solid player as long as he's healthy. So I think that confidence is why they didn't try to do, to do anything like that. And, and they probably didn't even really, really have an opportunity. Like Kyle Pitts wasn't available when they picked, and they probably wouldn't have picked him anyway. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure it was really ever in the plan. Yeah, I mean, maybe we're having a little bit of a different conversation if Pitts was available when the Bengals were on the clock with the draft. But, I, you know, it just – they did they seem to be content with not only Uzama's abilities but his rehab process and where he was at with everything. And that was, I guess, you know, if you have to look for the the, the sunshine through all of the, the cloudiness and the, the rain there with the injury of Uzama, I mean, I guess – the fact that it happened early in the season and he was able to continue rehab and be ready right now is is amazing. And to your earlier point about Nick Cosgray and rehab with with these injuries, you know, we do complain that the Bengals seem to have an inordinate amount of knee injury, ligament tears, and Achilles injuries and that sort of thing. At least comparative to other teams, or at least it seems that way. But to your point, they these guys come back pretty quickly. Um, and, and some of these guys, like you said, they're not small guys. I mean, they're coming back pretty quickly, uh, some of these bigger guys, and, and doing a lot of different things. And I always have to marvel at C.J. Uzama's career because he was a fifth-round pick a few years ago, was a guy that didn't even have a position coach at Auburn, was largely looked at as a major project and, and may not amount to anything. And here he is, the top tight end on the team, having a good NFL career, and, and hopefully he takes yet another step as he looks at, like you said, an, another contract here. I do want to go, John. I, did you did you hear these comments he said about mm-hmm. uh, celebrating with Joe Burrow and whatnot? And uh, he said he didn't, you know, uh, Terry says here he wants to get drunk in February. It sounded like he more wanted to see Joe Burrow drunk and maybe have some sort of uh, rehashing of the Tom Brady type of celebration that we saw this, this spring. I don't know, but uh, what do you make of those comments? I thought they were pretty entertaining. 
Well, even if he wasn't fully recovered, I think he would have been a, in a good mood regardless during the press conference because his Chelsea Blues just won the Champions <laughs> Champions League o- o- over the weekend. They beat Man City. Do you have an EPL uh, team, Anthony? Do, I, do do not, I do not. No. I do not. But, I do not. I, I enjoy the sport, but uh, just in general. But I don't have a. I don't have an allegiance to a, a squad or anything. So he was in good spirits from that. I, I think I've been following on Twitter for ever since he has been a Bengal, and he's always like the only Bengal that like I know that I, is a fan of Chelsea. I think maybe Gianni Bernard was one. I know that I know that those two were close when Gio was on the team, but he, I think he was he was feeling himself over the weekend, and I think he just wants, wants he wants that celebration, but for his team. You know what I mean? It, it's it's one thing to be a fan, but it's another thing to be a part of it. And I think he he knows that Burrow can get lit too. He saw that in LSU. <laughs> I I would venture to say yes, the Bengals players would celebrate hard, but the fans and how starved they have been for a championship, I would venture to say that the fan celebrations that we would see and hear about would be just absolutely epic if the Bengals, if and when I should say, the Bengals win a Super Bowl. But good stuff from CJ Uzama. The 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 best part about it though, John, overall, is that he he proclaims that he's 100% healthy. He's participating in and doing a lot of different things. And the Bengals continue to have everybody on out there at OTAs um, in, in some capacity. So they still have 100% participation, at least in some capacity. Some of those players kind of, you know, either resting or just present or doing rehab work. But, um, you know, everybody's there. Let's let's keep at it. I, did you see, I guess I should maybe try and queue up this video. We There was a, a video that went semi-viral out there of Joe Burrow throwing a ball 60 yards and the, the pass didn't wasn't completed to anybody, at least that I saw, but for a guy that was in this stage of his rehabilitation has been, uh, I guess, relegated to throwing the ball 40 yards or less just because of, you know, planting and power and all that kind of stuff, just where he's at in general with the rehab, seeing him launch the ball that far and hearing how much he has been working on the deep ball through his rehab process. What did you make of all of all of that as you witnessed that video? Those are some rainbows, man. Like, I feel yeah. like we didn't get a lot of video this week. Maybe they, like, shortened the period of which media could take video because we had, we had a lot of content on Twitter last week about, you know, Burrow taking those – uh, snaps from like an empty backfield and just making some quick throws. We saw a little bit of Burrow like kind of rolling out of the pocket and making s- some throws on the run for the first time. But yeah, it was it was some random dude. I think his name is Alfonso. He was just on the bridge with Bengal Jim. I'm assuming just that the bridge that goes over the over the yeah. Ohio River that overlooks both the practice fields. Um, so yeah, I think it was probably a 60 yard throw. It was weird because I think that was Jamar Chase in the back corner of that that end zone on on that field, and there was like a cooler like about five yards behind it. And the ball was like landing between chase and the cooler. And I'm thinking to myself, like watching this, like if this is like Baker Mayfield and he's just throwing bombs to basically no one and, and hitting turf next to this cooler, like, is this really like praiseworthy? So I was legitimately wondering, is he aiming for the cooler? And he said that, yeah, he was because he made like five or six other throws before that. And they all landed right next to it. So, I mean, that makes sense. You don't want receivers catching long balls and jamming their fingers or whatever, but that is the longest throw for sure that I've seen from Burrow since last season. I don't even remember if he made like a 60 yard throw during the regular season last year. I know that he didn't complete any that long, but um, uh, yeah, so he has been throwing like 40 to 50 before this, but now in the official team activities, he's now getting up to that distance. So progress is progress. Here is the video. We found it and uh, it's, it's been really, I mean, it's had tens of thousands of views at this point and it's, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty throw. And like you said, he's aiming for that cooler apparently in the backside there 
came pretty close to nailing in. I think you said, like you said, that's Jamar Chase right there in the corner, right? Um, mm-hmm. That he he appears that appears to be in the vicinity. But you know, I mean, when it's early summer, it's not training camp, and there's not a, you know a whole bunch to talk about. And of course, Joe Burrow on the comeback trail and throwing these kinds of of bombs here. That's that's something to to behold and talk about. And we like, we like what we're seeing there. You can find that on Twitter. The uh, yeah, the videos on Twitter and whatnot, but in case you had not seen that, some good stuff from Joe Burrow there. Are you, do you expect, I, I guess, I mean, hard not to improve upon the deep ball issues of last year, but I guess how, how much are you expecting the deep ball to improve this year? Not just because of just that video, but you know, it seems to be a major point of emphasis of Joe Burrow through his rehab. He seems to be, you know, a lot of people are saying he's bulking up. He looks like he's bulked up a little bit uh, in, in a good way. But, I mean, he, he is coming back from injury. So, I, you know, we sh- I, I, it's like we should temper expectations on it, but also I feel like we shouldn't really limit what this guy can do because he's already surpassed any kind of expectations in his rehab process so far. Right. It comes down to just general arm talent and timing. Right. And any quarterback who starts in most quarterbacks who start in the NFL, they should be able to complete a just a time and go route, you know, two steps, 40 yards down the field. That's what they practice a lot in training camp. That's what you see in like the early portions of training camp in those practices. It's just those go balls and they're always 35, 40 yards consistently. That's where the target is down the field. You expect a receiver to get separation uh, for that two step drop. So like that should have been there last year and and it wasn't the timing was just off we don't know if it was the lack of reps from a wonky offseason or if it was just a lack of communication with burrow and his receivers he was a rookie after all but with his you know running running main jamar chase there you have to think that that chemistry is going to click and rekindle at least early in the season and chase is really talented at gaining separation deep so it it really comes down to those two things I, i remember like last year like most of the big plays that he generated with his arm, it was almost like most of them were like out of structure. There was a couple from the Tennessee game where he was buying time and escaping the pocket and finding T Higgins down the field. It didn't come a lot. It didn't come on a lot of plays that were just really structured within the pocket and were designed to be released really quickly. And that, and that helps, right? That, that will maximize your efficiency on offense and it will minimize those long drives that took to take, that it took to get the ball in the end zone. So many of their drives came on, so many other touchdown drives, excuse me, came on like 10 plus play drives. And that's yeah. not really sustainable in the NFL. And that's why they, they weren't that efficient. They weren't that explosive. And they didn't score that many points in that many games. So that addition in itself will make things so much easier and will allow them to score 20, 30 points more consistently. But arm talent, timing, arm talent was there in spades last year. But you're seeing, at least in that video, that weight balance, right? He was talking about getting more towards center of of his release in terms of getting the weight distribution from just his, not only his back foot but off of his front foot too and so a lot a lot of times last year you saw him kind of like lean back mm-hmm. the ball either got there late or it floated a little bit there were questions about this is baby arm burrow is, is this guy regressing from lsu a little bit but now we're seeing the progression of the me- of the mechanics take shape and that's incredible to see off of a catastrophic injury but it's also kind of like the blessing in disguise right when you're doing all this rehab work with with your hips and your rotation and your weight balance and getting trust back in that knee, it's almost like you're doing the work that you would have done regardless of the injury, and now it's showing progress because you're seeing more zip on the ball and you're seeing the ball get down the field quicker. I, I go back, you know, 
it's weird to say, but I go back to week one against the Chargers. And God, I think they were almost back-to-back plays, if I remember correctly. But yep. uh, I mean, it was the the ball. I, I forget which one came first. Was it the AJ Green one or the John Ross one? Regardless, I mean, it's kind of the tail. It was a microcosm of the entire season with the deep ball. It was you know either Burrow kind of missed one, or you know you, you kind of feel like he threw a, a really solid ball, and John Ross wasn't there to corral it, and it just didn't didn't come to fruition there. So. You know, I, the hope is now with Chase and, you know, some rapport that he began to build with Higgins last year on the field, that these are the guys that are going to stretch the field. Chase doesn't have that John Ross straight line speed per se, but he's still really fast and he's got the jump ball ability. He's got the the ability to win 50-50 balls. So you hope that more of those end up going the Bengals way, even with some veteran receivers that they've had on the team for years and Ross and A.J. Green out of the picture now, but I, I just, I, when, anytime someone talks about burrowing the deep ball, I always go back <laughs> to that, to that week one game. Cause I just, Oh, I was just like, Oh my gosh, it was right there. It was right there. Uh, before we talk more about Jamar chase, we can talk a little bit just quickly about his uh, rookie classmates because, well, I mean, we are talking about Jamar chase, I guess a bit because Jamar chase signed <laughs> his contract and uh, as did Joseph Osai to round out, the rookie class and I mean not not a whole bunch to talk about here other than it's good to have the entire class signed and uh you know it seems it, it's a lot earlier that uh, it was completed a lot earlier last year and now that's just kind of a, a talking point and something we can all move past yep if you're worried about it you shouldn't have been it wasn't going to take <laughs> that long um it's it's always interesting the timing like you said they had seven of their rec- rookie picks um, sign on the same day. Mm-hmm. And you, then you had Jackson Carmen sign by, on, by himself. And now two weeks later, you have Asai and Jamar Chase both being signed on the same day. I'm kind of curious of why that happens sometimes. I, I wonder if they share like agencies and it's just like, let's just get this done today. Let's just increase efficiency. Um, I don't know. I really don't know how it works. I don't know the inner communications with that. I just looked it up. They don't share agents. It just happened to be, I don't know. They decided to get it done. I guess whatever it happened. We're, we're moving on. Yeah, they they signed the the ink is to paper, and the entire draft class is signed. And now it's all about workouts. It's all about staying healthy and getting ready for Week One. But continuing with some Jamar Chase talk, and I'm going to share this article here in just a second. But you you wrote this one up on CincyJungle.com about Jamar Chase making a solid first impression at OTAs. We kind of expected that to be the case in general, but there was an interesting nuance and in a quote that Zach Taylor mentioned that got me thinking about uh, his time with the Rams and and some other facets of that. But this is the article that John wrote up on cincyjungle.com. And John, the, the part I'm talking about is the flexibility factor in terms of what these all of these guys, including Chase, bring to the wide receiver group. Quote, what I really like about Jamar is he has the size and the speed to play outside and the physicality. He also has the quickness and the body control to play inside as well. So it gives you a lot of flexibility to move all three of those starting receivers around, Chase being one, Higgins being another, and of course, Tyler Boyd being being another. And then you work in the other guys we have behind them. That might be Jamar in the slot on one play and Tyler Boyd on the outside. 
where another play big bodies like Auden Tate T Higgins inside on a concept to maximize their height and range. It's a lot of fun to work with and gives us a lot of flexibility. These are quotes by Zach Taylor. Your impressions when you saw that quote, John, and did you, I think we knew Chase would be able to do a lot of different things in this offense. Do you think that that would be noticed at least or, or, uh, contemplated by the coaching staff at this point in his rookie year so early that they are thinking about kind of moving guys around and being being versatile at that position group. So we knew that Chase could in in spades, right? He didn't play that much slot in his time at LSU. I believe he was like a career 85, 88-ish percentage um, of, of his routes run from the outside, primarily at that X spot. That's where he was projected into the NFL as, but there were some times where he got some opportunities inside and, and he was, you know, relatively successful at it. It's just that it is, it is a projection based off of the athlete that he is, right? He's strong and physical to handle press coverage and, and to get separation deep against, you know, man-to-man coverage, but he's also, you know, quick and nimble enough to gain separation against those smaller slot cornerbacks against zone coverage. So the, the athleticism is there. The talent is there. It's just that can he actually do it on a consistent basis to be used enough to be considered positional versatile like I, I i remember aj green because that's like who like i think tyler boyd compared him to like he's more of a dynamic athlete than aj aj was more of a a, a contortionist who can kind of you know win at the catch point with, with his length and stuff but he wasn't really like a shifty guy who can, who can gain quick separation and what wasn't had didn't have the strength that jamar chase has they're two different athletes right but i remember like the as green's career in cincinnati progressed he became almost like an efficient option in the slot he had like a decent amount of slot production even though he didn't run that many routes in the inside. But even when he was in his one year in Taylor's offense, he was just primarily used on the boundary. And then Tyler Boy was primarily used in the slot. And now you're having a, a dialogue about, you know, moving Chase inside, getting t- Tyler Boyd outside. And the whole thing works as long as you have the same production and efficiency as your base offense, which would have Chase at the X, Boyd in the slot, and Higgins as your flanker, the guy off of the line of scrimmage, but not in the slot. And those, those are your three receivers. And you, if you can move those guys around, and you can, you know, gain the same yardage, gain the same amounts of first downs, and move the ball as consistently as you do when things are normal. That creates so much more dynamic dynamicness in the entire offense because you're giving defenses varying looks, but you're still moving the ball the same way. And it's it it becomes an opportunity to create mismatches, mismatches and scheme schematic advantages, and it creates a lot of opportunities for what you can do on offense. And that's the plan, and it's a good one because Chase has the athleticism to do that, but. And LSU, again, he was primarily a boundary receiver, and he didn't really do much work in the slot. They had Justin Jefferson for that, so he didn't really need to do that on a consistent basis. But I do agree that there is a difference between looking at him and looking at Chase and Green and the differences in what they could do well and their athleticism and their body types. And I can see the vision of, of seeing Chase being used more in the slot, and that would give Tyler Boyd some more opportunities. He can get one-on-one coverage against you know, other cornerbacks and give him other opportunities to produce because he's been primarily a slot receiver. And that's what he does well. He, he has been, there have been opportunities and, and Boyd has had some nice moments playing kind of a, a little bit more of an outside role in, in those years that AJ Green was hurt. Um, and they had just injuries around. They had to, they had to play him outside at times, but you know, I, I think, this this offense is really going to be clicking on all cylinders with those guys 
um, doing what they do best. You know, you mentioned Jamar Chase and you said it in the article about 85% of his snaps at LSU in 2019 were at the X receiver position or an outside receiver position. But the, the, the good news is the Bengals feel that they can be diverse in that position group and on offense to kind of do things to keep defenses on their heels, which hasn't always been the case. And I go back, you know, I mean, to the Rams style of, of their offense, you know, they move around their wide receivers and, and I think Reynolds has moved on now, but when they had Josh Reynolds, when they had uh, Robert Woods and, and cooks and, you know, all those guys were kind of there together, they would, they would move around those guys and do a lot of different in cup. Right. I mean, Cooper cup, he, he's, he's a guy they did some different things with as well. So it's kind of a, a to me, I guess I watch a little bit more Rams football than, than others being where I live, but I, I, I see some carryover there in that philosophy in that Taylor wants those guys to not just be pigeonholed in. Okay. You're going to be playing here. You're going to be the other outside guy. You're going to be the slot guy and let's go. There's going to be a little bit of a shell game and opposing defenses are going to try and have to figure things out. Yeah, and the whole thing with the Rams offense with McVay is that they basically they, they sometimes line up with like three guys who were like just offset from the line of scrimmage. So like three guys in these tight formations, and they're all basically slot receivers. Then yeah. when they had Cooks and Cup and and um Robert Woods, I believe too, like those guys could all do everything that was required. They they could run a full route tree from those alignments. And I think Boyd can do that, Chase can do that. I, I think the variable is, is Higgins because if, if Higgins is truly like 220 now or 215, if he's bulked up and pr- hopefully he still has the athleticism that he showed to have last year, I think that's the biggest projection. Like how versatile can you make him in terms of what routes can he win off? What Which coverages can he beat in those situations? There might not be as much versatility with him because of his body type and his and his play style and his athleticism. So that may be something to monitor for this plan overall, but that was always the appeal of the Rams offense and why it took the league kind of by storm because they could throw whatever alignment at you at, at that, that, that they wanted and they could surprise you and they, and they could just get these explosive runs off of it. And they, they would build the run game off of what they did in the past game. And it would be so similar in the pre-snap phase that defenses wouldn't exactly know what to do with it. And that's kind of how the train worked. And I think Taylor tried to adapt, adjust going off of that to what he had in Cincinnati in the first few years. And then the personnel was just never off to snuff. And now you're in a position where you have these receivers that can line up in multiple spots and you're not limited to, you know, certain positions for them. And now you can kind of implement more of that while keeping the identity that you want, which is, which should be a marriage between the LSU system that Burrow was so good at and the system that Zach Taylor came from with the Rams. If you can combine both of those, utilize them against different defenses, but depending on what, what would better suit in that matchup? You have potentially dangerous offense. Higgins bulking up is an interesting aspect. You know, it seems if you say he's at maybe 215, 220, that puts him what about five to 10 pounds heavier mm-hmm. uh, than he played as a rookie. And I mean, you, you have to remember he was 21 when they drafted him. So his body's still in a way developing. He is then also getting into a pro team weight weight program, pro team weight staff. So that that kind of changes the, the dynamics there a little bit 
there. And I would almost argue, John, you mentioned, you know, maybe Higgins is kind of a guy that is pigeonholed in a little bit more so than maybe a Tyler Boyd, definitely a Jamar Chase. But maybe that bulking up a little bit was part of the plan to be able to say, hey, you know, if I need to kick inside, make those tougher catches, which he showed the ability to do last year. If I need to kick inside, make those tougher short short yardage catches, chain moving catches. I can do that, but also I can have a little bit of extra strength and weight to be on the outside and muscle away some of those 50-50 balls, which was already a strength of his anyway. I don't know if maybe I'm just reaching by that by that conjecture there, but maybe, maybe that was part of the plan in terms of him gaining a, a couple of pounds of muscle there. Yeah, we haven't really seen that much of Higgins thus far. Right. I think it was Jeff Hobson who said that he looks notably bigger. Maybe some other reporters kind of noticed that as well. I believe if we were to look at Bengals.com right now, I don't think his weight would look any different than what it was last year. But yeah, he was always kind of growing into his body and he showed to be a better route runner and a more um, better in-game athlete than he was maybe maybe even at Clemson. So he took a lot of us mm-hmm. by surprise to for how quickly he developed. And if he's now at this point where he's 220, but he's moving at the same rate as last year. Like that's, that's only a good thing. It's not, it's not a, a negative at all. If he, if he bulked up, if he can utilize that extra strength to his advantage. And I mean, they're going to need him, right? Like if chase Boyd Higgins, the whole thing only works when they're all effective at what they can do. And they all have individual strengths. But again, we we're, just like we talked about, like they can all be used in this plan to basically be interchangeable and give defenses a lot of fits. Cause they're not really sure who's going to be the main target on, on every single play. Joe saying Boyd said he looked bigger too. I think that's uh, I, I remember seeing that as well. Our resident live listener comedian Brian in Iowa saying Higgins joined Lifetime Fitness. I am actually a member of a Lifetime Fitness out here. I love that place. I, no, no advertising there at all. Just love Lifetime Fitness. But uh, so when anytime someone brings up Lifetime Fitness, have to have to shout that out there a little bit. But regardless. <laughs> Uh, I just from pictures and videos I have seen Higgins does look a little bit more more bulky in a good way added some some muscle tone there potentially and I, I think all of this that article that you put up on on cincyjungle.com relaying the quotes from from Taylor I think it all bodes well and the fact that Joe Burrow's rehab is going well it's all pointing in a good direction for a productive offense and strengthening some of the weaker areas in the offense that we saw last year, even when Joe Burrow was healthy. So again, positive train coming through. So uh, hopefully Bengals fans are prepared for it, even from guys like us. We've got to state your case in just a minute here, but before we do, we talked about lifetime fitness, but we got to talk about our friends at symbol s-i-m-b-u-l-l if you are a stock market player if you are a fantasy football player if you are a sports better you gotta add symbol to your repertoire it is the stock market for sports and john uh the the value of the bangles the sim bangles value keeps fluctuating it is not where it was for those who did not get in on the on the front end here it is not where it was then but uh the Bengals are, are making some waves in the symbol world. That was then. This is now. They're still at like $64. Like it takes a, a pretty good chunk of change to bid on that price. And it's going to be tough to find a seller right now because they're at all time high. And I believe uh, the Kansas City Chiefs are closing in on them just at under 60 bucks a share right now. We talked a lot about the Bengals. We probably have some Reds fans in the audience too, being from Cincinnati. The Reds. 24 and 29, I think they're just coming off of a loss, but they came off like a, a series win against the Cubs. They are sitting at $30.30, which is 
which I believe is amongst the bottom 10 teams or the most affordable 10 teams on the SIM MLB market. So there's your piece of symbol information for the week. But just like Anthony said, symbol is the stock market for sports. It really is that simple. You see teams, they have prices attached to them. You invest for the long haul. You see if they do good or bad. But you guys know which teams are good and bad. You guys are the smartest fan base of any podcast out there. So I trust that you will use this knowledge for good. But this is a way to weaponize that knowledge of your sports and make some money off of it. And in order to do that, you should go to www.symbol.app. That's www.simbull.app backslash OBI. Get your $10 deposit bonus when you enter the promo code OBI. Get in on some of this action. We've got the website for those of you in the live chats. We've got the website for you to take advantage of that $10 deposit bonus John spoke of at symbol S-I-M-B-U-L-L, which is the stock market for sports. Check it out and uh, go invest some in, in the Bengals. Make yourself some money. Go for it. Have some fun. We've got a state your case to get to. So let's get to it. There is nothing more polarizing that I found on NFL Twitter or Bengals Twitter than a PFF rankings article. Because PFF, it's, 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 I don't know the term to describe it, but it's damn if you do, damn if you don't. Like, they are universally praised for when they have data about your team being good and they are berated into the ground when they tell you that your team isn't all rainbows and fairies. And that's, that's the case for all 32 fan bases. So Sam Monson, who is one of PFF's like, like staple analysts and writers, he ranked the top 32 safeties in the NFL this week. And our own Jesse Bates, he ended up in the top 10, not the top five though. He ended up as the eighth best safety. And I believe Mm -hmm. our own Nick Manchester kind of went viral on Twitter saying Jesse Bates is the eighth best safety but he recorded the highest overall PFF grade among safeties last year at 90.1. Bates was an all pro snub. Unfortunately, it was a pro bowl snub as well. He was regarded on, you know, PFF social team as like the best safety in the NFL last year. PFF made a case for him making all pro. I think they listed him as the Bengals most underrated player. And then he came in outside of the top seven in their safety rankings. And this kind of start sparked a debate amongst Bengals fans and maybe NFL Twitter as well, because the list was not very popular amongst other NFL fan bases. I believe uh, the Cardinals, SB Nation, Cyber Revenge of the Birds, they were a little mad about Budu Baker coming in at 16th. Um, uh, like, I mean, we have what Jeremy Chin coming in at 32nd. We have um, Justin Simmons coming in at the top spot. He just got paid. Jesse Bates is probably going to get that same contract that Justin Simmons got. John Johnson of the of the Browns, they signed him this offseason. He came in at number third. Marcus Williams, who's best known for the um, Minneapolis Miracle on the other side of it. He came in at fourth. Pittsburgh Steelers, Mika Fitzpatrick came in at fifth. Derwin James, who hasn't really played the NFL in the last two years, came in at sixth. And Marcus May came in at seventh with the Jets. Now, my whole thing with this is that while I would arguably put Bates over probably two or three of those guys for sure to make him safely in the top five when it comes to the conversation, I understand putting Bates in this range of the of the ranking because 
Bates is coming off his third year in the league. He's 23, 24 years old. I think he's one of the youngest by far amongst this entire 32-player list. Now, mind you, 32 players, there's 64 starting safeties in the NFL. So that puts Bates in the top, what, what, what is that, top 87th, 88th percentile of safeties, a guy who should have been the Pro Bowl and All-Pro. Like That's more or less accurate for what he is. And I think there's a false correlation with, between being the best player in one year and being the best player of the entire NFL overall. And that's not really, I think, how these PFF rankings work. It's not just about what you did last year. It's about what you did last year, along with what you did in the previous recent years before you as well. And guys like Marcus May, guys like Minka Fitzpatrick, Marcus Williams, Harrison Smith came in at number two, and Justin Simmons, I think they are in the same range right now in terms of being elite with Jesse Bates, but they have more of a established pedigree of consistent success that Bates may not have right now. Going into the 2020 season, we talked about Bates being a breakout player for the Bengals because there were flashes of greatness in his first two years, but it was riddled and meddled with inconsistently, primarily from his run defense. He didn't always have the ball production that he had last year. It was insane to see him make so many plays in the ball from primarily a deep safety alignment, but that production was not always the case. We, we saw it. We saw the potential unfold last season. And at this point, if you were to pick any of these guys going forward as a safe that you want, you wouldn't take Jesse, you wouldn't take you know, like two or three of these guys over Jesse Bates because of how young he is and how good he is right now. But I do understand, at least from Monson's perspective, to not crown Bates as the top safety or maybe one of the top two or three safeties in the league right now. And if you ex- kind of accept that, if you accept that he's in that four to eight range, everything beyond that is more or less marginal. And my whole take with marginal things is that, is it really worth getting, you know, riled up about it all? Like, is it the end of the world that Marcus May is one spot above Jesse Bates? Is it the end of the world that Mika Fitzpatrick, who was already in elite safety before Jesse Bates became that type of player, that he's ranked four spots higher than them? I think a lot of these names are interchangeable based on the order, but I do understand why it's a little bit too soon to crown Jesse Bates as the king or one of the two or three best safeties in the league, even though... In a year from now, if Bates puts together another great year, he belongs higher on this list for sure. There are so many different routes I can I can take, and and the overarching thing is I, I largely agree with what you're saying here. I love Pro Football Focus. Evan McPhillips is one of my favorite follows on on Twitter. We've had him on this show. We got to get him back on here too, talking some grades and whatnot. I, I respect the hell out of out of his work and what PFF does, and the the amount of you know, legwork that goes into all of their grading systems and whatnot. But as as high functioning of a grading system as it is, and as largely reliable as it is, there are inconsistencies to it that makes me not always take it as football scripture, so to speak, like a lot of people do. I, I adhere to their their metrics i adhere to their data and it, it is a, a very good barometer as to player performance but I, I i showed this one earlier i'm gonna i'm gonna bring it up again from joe in our live youtube chat and he says i noticed the rankings don't match their own grades a lot and that you you mentioned it yourself john where jesse bates the highest ranked safety is barely within the top 10 and you said what the 87th percentile or so on this list, if you're top ranked safety, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily need you to be the number one guy on the list per se, but if you're the top ranked safety 
by your metrics and you are the site that is then ranking these guys, I would expect there to be a little bit of a, a higher ranking there. And I think the whole thing with it, it's not so much, why isn't, at least for me, why isn't he number one on this list? Why isn't he top five on this list? It's just Bengals fans, and we all know, rightfully so, have a gigantic chip on their shoulder for quality players continuing to be overlooked. It's why Bengal Jim is going to this uh, Hall of Fame event that we talked about on June 19th to make sure that Bengals players are getting their due in, in Canton. It's why fans, people who cover the team, Twitter follows, all of us get up in arms when we see an unfair ranking, even if it's an arbitrary one like the one you're referencing. So I I, I think that's kind of where my my qualm with it is I'm not sitting here losing sleep over the fact that PFF doesn't have Jesse Bates as their number one safety in in the by their you know by their rankings <laughs> they decided to put out but I do see a little bit of a disconnect when he's their top ranked safety of the year and he's barely inside the top ten. The other thing I want to mention though, Jesse Bates has been a high performer on this defense. There was a point in time, John, if you remember in Zach Taylor's first year. The first half of the year or so, Jesse Bates did not look like the same guy uh, for, mm-hmm. for a little bit of, of time there. Then he really kicked it in high gear towards the end of that season, and then he was awesome last year. He had a great rookie season as well. I, I expect the performance – I think someone had mentioned Sam Monson is referencing the fact that he believes Bates is maybe going to take a step backwards That's for whatever reason that may be. I actually think that – he may take a step forward, believe it or not, or at least tread water from what we saw last year because the Bengals appear to have uh, a lot of uh, – they've kind of restocked the defensive talent cabinet. And I know Carl Lawson and William Jackson, those losses hurt, but they seem to be deeper. They seem to be better equipped for injuries at the cornerback position should they strike. And there may be just a little bit less pressure on him to be Mr. Everything on this defense – with an increased pass rush, with some deeper position groups than we've seen over the past couple of years. That's just something that came to mind when we're talking about this. I will say, there's, and PFF has explained this numerous times, because that is a question that they get a lot. Like, I, I believe Tyreek Hill is a good example. Like, they had Tyreek Hill as, like, one of their top receivers in the NFL in, in like, a recent ranking, but he graded in as, like, the 17th best in, in terms of just, like, receiving or offensive grade. And they explained that, the grades are a measure of production, not a, not necessarily a measure of talent. And when you're ranking, I guess, the best players at a certain position, it's a lot of things that kind of go into the bowl when you, when you concoct that ranking, right? It's not only production. It's not only talent. It's not only consistency. It's all of those things. And Jesse Bates, in terms of talent and production, that's why he's, number, that's why he's in the top 10, right? I think it's just the consistency – that's holding him back. Just like you mentioned, like 2018 first eight weeks of that season, he was playing like a defensive rookie of the year kind of fell off a little bit. 2019 was much more inconsistent, much more up and down. We were thinking, are we ever going to see that Bates from 20 from the first part of 2018 again? And then 2020, he kind of started to put it all together, which is why he's number eight on this list. And in the top 10, instead of looking on, on the outside from that sense, if he didn't have the should have been all pro season that he had, he probably would have been like 15th or something like that or or something, because Again, he is still young. He is still talented, but putting it all together, I think that's truly what makes a truly elite player when you're talking about ranking guys because past years do matter too. Like if a guy is elite like Harrison Smith and he has been elite for nine, 10 years and he's still playing at a decent level, like 
that's something that you have to respect. And the, the, the grades reflect that. And also like the other parts of the equation reflect that. So for PFF's defense, I do understand the whole difference between production and talent and why the grades don't always reflect with the rankings. But le- like you said as well, I think Monson, when he's talking about Bates potentially regressing, I think that's more of the line that guys in the secondary, it's hard to be elite from year to year. Like Darrell Revis's run in the early 2010s, like that was so rare and so amazing to be that good for consecutive years. It's, it's really hard. And that's why if you have a great secondary, chances are your defense is going to be great no matter what. And I think in terms of volume production, the box score production with Bates, that would be very hard to replicate. And if he does do that this this upcoming season with that much ball production, I would be mightily impressed. And he would have to have earned the recognition that he missed this past year. But in terms of being consistent, I think I agree with you there. I think we are going to see that increase or at least that consistency that he showed last year kind of it's going to be here to stay. And it could be because he's now playing on a new contract or maybe he will be playing a contract year. Hopefully that's not the case for, for the Bengals, but I think we will see a consistent, the, the, the consistent baits that we saw last year, but maybe the ball production doesn't um, make a reappearance, but the PFF grades, they are, they are graded on consistency. They are graded on making as little mistakes as possible, being in the right position and that typically does follow with production, but sometimes it doesn't. So with Bates, I really do think that it's just about consistency for him. The talent's there, the, 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 the ceiling is there, the stock is going up, everything is there except just putting it all together for two consecutive years. And as soon as he does that, I think you're going to see him higher in these rankings. Do you remember the game last year? I think it was the Colts game. He made plays in that game that I had not seen a defensive back for the Bengals or a lot of other teams make in a, in a at least a safety mm-hmm. you know in a while. The the interception he had of Philip Rivers and that game got that game was just insane in general. Right. I mean, the game was shot out to like a twenty one nothing lead and they gave it up. They ended up losing the game, but uh, the the interception he made late in the game and then there was just uh, he was just all over the field and there was that that was a point in time. I mean, I already really. I, I knew he was a, a very good player, but that's when I was started really watching and going, you know, this guy's a star. This guy's just a, a star player, and he's really starting to put it together on a consistent basis. And I, you kind of answered the question I was going to ask you in terms of what you thought about what I was saying in terms of, you know, the consistency in 21. What is that going to be there? Is that is the added defensive help that I mentioned going to be there? And it sounds like you think, you know, or you are expecting, right, that he's going to be, on the same type of level, if not maybe even a little higher than we saw this year. Exactly. And I remember right after that Colts game, like I remember writing an article about that play basically. And like, that is the play of a defensive player of the year. And he maintained that level of play. Like the, I don't think he had a play more impressive than that for the remaining uh, remainder of the season, but the perfect way to, to describe the Bengals defense last year was Jesse Bates putting out a bunch of small fires, which I think was originally said <laughs> by Derek Klassen on Twitter, which is, I mean, it's the, it's the perfect description of it. He carried that defense. And if he wasn't playing at that level, it would have been clearly the worst defense in the league for sure. So if everyone else kind of around him gets better, stays healthy, plays more consistent, he won't be tasked with doing much extra work and he'll just be tasked with just doing what he needs to do. And hopefully that will lead to more notoriety in his sense. If the whole rest of the defense plays well, the whole team plays better. More wins come out of it. He gets no more. He goes up in the rankings. Everybody's happy. Well, the good news is Jesse Bates is also assuming a leadership mantle with this team, which likely means uh, or or 
could mean a contract extension in his future. The Bengals usually like to take care of those the summer prior to a player hitting free agency, which is uh, maybe going to be the case here with with Jesse Bates. So, um, you know, expect that to at least be a conversation topic, the two sides talking about a contract extension, I would think, based on his play the past couple of years. But good stuff, John. This was this week's State Your Case. Drop the mic and get out of here. What do you got for us, John? So I can barely be classified as a sports journalist. But when I think of this industry and what it means to do it well, I think of two things. Number one, objectively reporting the events in a way that informs the audience. And that pretty much goes for all journalism. And number two, for those who have direct access with players, being the platform for them to share the stories and messages they feel compelled to share. I've let this Naomi Osaka story marinate for a little bit, and I've realized that the whole thing kind of violates that second point. If Osaka does not feel comfortable with the current state and maybe even how tennis media has always operated, then putting out slam pieces berating her for her lack of professionalism or whatever, it's kind of selfish and entitled of an industry whose livelihood revolves around her livelihood existing, which is the reality with all sports media. We don't have this job without the athletes, especially the great ones like Osaka. Does it make your job harder that she doesn't want to talk to you? The superstar of her sport simply does not feel comfortable giving you content. Yes, it does make your job harder. But instead of respecting that and taking the appropriate steps towards a productive solution, aka supporting her, we immediately make her the enemy because she believes it's detrimental to her well-being to go with the status quo. She's willing to drop out of a grand slam for it. And we treat her like a spoiled brat because she's mad because we're mad. She's not falling in line when she clearly thinks there's a very serious reason why she is not. Instead of trying to understand the individual issue, which would effectively give her a voice for the issue she's trying to express by staying silent. We kind of twist it to our benefit and make us look like the victims because the status quo is changing. The status quo is changing. The paradigm of how we see power in sports is altering, and anyone who's fighting against that either got used to feeling powerful in what's supposed to be a symbiotic relationship, or they just feel like their imaginary power is being sucked away. You're journalists. Your job is not to manipulate. Your job is not to enforce. You are the medium between the players you cover and the audience you have. If this is Osaka's message and you're taking it like this, you're just proving why she doesn't want to talk to you in the first place. I know I don't really get too serious with these types of things, but I mean, this this is something that's kind of happening in, in our arena and it, it's, it doesn't really sit well with me right now. Well said. Uh, I, I haven't, I haven't paid uh, admittedly the closest attention to it. I've, I've kind of had it on the periphery and I have heard and seen some things with it, that, but you, you make a great point about, you know, the, the journalism side of things where it's, there are times where it's almost like, some journalists are, and I'm not saying specific names or anything like that, but it, there seems to be an air of you owe me this interview or you owe me this, you owe me this time, or you owe me these answers type of thing. And that's just um, that I, I don't have the platform that some of these other folks do, but John, I know you and I just, we don't approach things that way. And uh, you know, that's just, that's just not, sounds like uh, you and I are seeing eye to eye on this bit. You know, that's just not how I approach it. I'm, I know you're the same way. Geno Atkins was here for 11 years. 
I think he spoke to the media like twice. Not not a single person had a problem with it because he was so good at what he did. And he played in a sport where there were 52 other teammates of his that they could get content from. I think with her case, she's all alone out there. It's a solo sport and all of the, the whole world of tennis is on her. And it's unfair to kind of treat those things kind of separately. And again, like if you want her to fall in line, if you want her to do the things that everyone else does, the best way to approach that is, is not to attack her. It's to recognize that the issue here is real and work towards a more productive solution. And it, it's a shame that we keep kind of doing this, right? We keep thinking that these athletes are spoiled, they're entitled, they, they think they're better than us, they think they don't have to do things by, by the rules because they have you know, this imaginary sense of power and leverage. They do have power and leverage. Again, the only reason why we do this is because they're good at what they do. And until we come up with a sense of understanding of what they're going through and try to figure out a solution, the divide is still going to be there. Well said. Well said. I don't I don't have much other than an announcement to make. And uh, we've got a few irons in the fire in terms of interviews and whatnot. And we will uh, we will be having Lindsay Patterson join us. Oh, it's either going to be next week or the week after. We're trying to iron all of that out. But um, she will be joining us, a prominent Cincinnati media member who covers the Bengals, covers Cincinnati sports, one of the favorites in the local media. We're going to get her take on things. She's been present for OTAs and whatnot. So um, we will hear from her. We're excited to hear from her. Our first time talking to her on this program. Long overdue, John. Um, we yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm excited about that one. Um, we've, you know, we've had a, a few of the local media members, and she's always been one that, well, yeah, we got to get her on. We got to get her on, and she has said that she is uh, happy to come on the program, and we'll probably get her on in the next week or so. So, um, pretty excited about that one, and uh, we'll definitely be letting everyone know once we iron that out. But we've been in recent conversations with her to to get that going. Anything else before we hop on out of here, John? Uh, just another reminder, um, it is now June. We are 10 days away from Joe Mixon's pro camp uh, starting up at Sycamore High School, June 12th to 13th. Um, j- just want to let you know, like the representative for Joe Mixon's camp, he reached out to me today. He said that there was a lot of activity with the post that we put up on Sissy Jungle. A lot of you guys have been you know, clicking and signing up. So shout out to you guys for you know being a part of Mixon's camp. Um, again, I believe we said this last week, but Jamar Chase is going to make an appearance as well. That was a, a new development um, a- after the initial announcement in uh, early May. So 10 more days until that happens. If you have a child in grades one through eight, boy or girl, and you want them to be trained and by Joe Mixon and see Jamar Chase as well, definitely get, give them a shout out. Go to ProCamps.com backslash Joe Mixon, I believe is the link uh, and find it on Cincy Jungles too. It'll, it'll be up there on the website. Cincy Jungle is the official media sponsor of that event. So pretty cool thing. And Joe Mixon used to do that with AJ Green, I believe. And mm-hmm. now he's kind of taken that over a little bit now since AJ Green has moved on. And now he's teaming up with Jamar Chase for a pretty cool deal working with uh, kids and, and teaching them some football. Good stuff. Thanks, John. Thanks for uh, all you do. And thanks, everybody. We're seeing some great compliments in the live chat, uh, even though I accidentally bowed out for a brief moment there <laughs> seeing some, some good uh seeing some good compliments there appreciate you all tuning in live if you are able to tune in live whether it's on cincy jungles facebook page it's twitter account our twitter account at big 
Ingalls OBI or our YouTube channel, please do so. Be sure to like and or subscribe to the YouTube channel and the Facebook page to be notified when we go live, when new content is available. And of course, you can get this show on your favorite audio streamer, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, all of that. Get it how you can. Subscribe to the podcast channel as well to get not only our show, but great ones like Chalk Talk from Matt Minnick and Ace and Zim, the Orange is the New Black podcast. They just had Renell Wren on the show this week, so go check that one out. Good stuff there. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you soon.